morning. And uh, draw your attention, first of all, we're going to be looking at two passages this morning, or uh, taking our, our text from two passages. Uh, draw your attention, first of all, to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10, and then we'll be, we will be turning to James 1. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away. As with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring your years to an end like our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Let's turn to James 1, 12 through 18. Forgot to start my timer. That might be a problem. James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Sounds kind of familiar after our study in Revelations, doesn't it? Uh, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and our heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word and your spirit uses this word to enlighten us to truth. Lord, that we might learn more of you, that we might draw closer to you, that we might learn more of your son, that we might learn more of the power of the Holy Spirit Lord, we thank you that we, we learn 
of your attributes. We thank you that we learn that you are an eternal and unchangeable God. Lord, what assurance and what hope, what a foundation that gives us to walk through this world of uncertainty. Lord, bless your word here this morning. May your spirit quicken hearts this morning, Lord. May you open eyes and open ears. May you give us hearts that are able to discern your will, hearts to discern your word, to rightly divide your word. Lord, feed us here this morning with, with the blessed fruits of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All through our study that we just completed on the first three chapters of Revelation, uh, I kept on going back to something that I brought up in the, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Robert Murray McShane, and you can go back and listen if you want to hear the actual quote. I can't quote it verbatim. But Robert Murray McShane quotes, uh, is quoted saying that when, when Jesus says to the church of, of Ephesus, the words of him, he said, these are sweet words. And they're sweet because it gives us a glimpse of Jesus and what his will is and what his working is and what his character is when he is at the right hand of the Father in glory. And what do we find but that it is the same as it was when he walked on the earth. These are sweet and precious words. To know that there is no change in our Savior from the time when he walked with his disciples and taught them to the time when he ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. These are sweet words. Sweet words. And then when we look around us, we see the uncertainty and the change in our world. Is there not uncertainty in everything around us? Our government, our leaders, our money, our work that we do in our society as a whole, the world we live in, and for that matter, the people who live in it are in a constant process of change. All the time changing. From the moment of the fall, this is something that is, is a unique facet of life common to all people everywhere and the created order that we observe around us. This was not the case in the beginning. It was not the same. But God in, in his wisdom, God in his eternal purpose chose to allow the fall to happen so that his attributes, his grace, his mercy, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness, his sovereignty might be on full display for all mankind to see. We don't understand that fully. But nevertheless, we lean upon the word of God, which is inerrant, which is authoritative, which is our rule of faith and practice, and that is what it says, and that is what we will believe. We don't understand it fully, cannot comprehend it. God's ways are so much higher than ours. Well, from that moment on, from the moment of the fall on, 
At the moment of conception, human beings are subject to change and decay. From the womb, they are in a sense beginning the change that will eventually lead to death. Even those things in creation that aren't human in nature are subject to the curse of the fall. Everything that you look at is subject to change and decay. The trees in our yard, the grass we read about earlier, everything around us subject to decay. Even those things that you think are, are built with, with great precision and strength, you let it alone for a few years, and what happens? These grand cities, great buildings that aren't even alive, but they're still subject to decay. Everything is changing. Everything is decaying. And we see this not only in our physical bodies, but in our thoughts and desires as well. We're subject to our whims, to our hungers, and to our thirsts, which are constantly changing. One moment we're satisfied, and the next we grow hungry and thirsty. We even appreciate being around people, our friends and our family, being around our possessions. And then what eventually happens? We grow weary. Do we not? Our desires, our passions change. And we can stand being around someone for a little time. We may even enjoy it, but 24-7 gets to be a different story, does it not? Economists even have a term for this. It's a law in, in economics called the law of diminishing returns. And basically, it states that in terms of an employer, an employer, will, an employer, an employee, excuse me, will work really hard for a set amount of hours. And those of you who have had employees understand this, that they will work real hard for a certain amount of time. And then there's, there comes this breaking point where their effectiveness and their efficiency starts to diminish because they don't have the zeal for the job. This, this happens in investing. You've got someone who has a, an idea that they want to invest in, and the more money they put into it, the more time and effort, and the longer it takes, the less they are to continue to invest in that that they want to see come about. It's the law of diminishing returns. It's because we are subject, even in our minds, in our hearts, we are subject to change. Think about experiences you've had in your own life and how the change in others affects you. If you've ever worked for somebody, then you've undoubtedly experienced a boss who may have a pet project that he wants to do, and you, you go in with him and you work on this, and all of a sudden, it's dropped just like that. Or it's on to the next thing. I work in government. Brad's worked in government. Elliot, you've worked in government. You see this all the time. You get a new person in charge that has a new idea and it's, it's off to the races to get that idea accomplished and then another person comes in and immediately it's something else. That is forgotten, that is changed, and we're on to the next thing. In government, there's constant change. Constant change in elections. Constant change from politicians with sinful minds and hearts and they're grasping to worship their own idols they've made of their own power and authority. 
Does anyone here this morning feel secure in our liberties and our freedoms? You see through history how the tides have changed in these regards? Religious freedom, for example. Can we not see the change through the past in terms of Christian freedom in society and their ability to openly worship the Lord by the dictates of what the Scriptures tell us? Our own country was founded by separatists who were wanting to flee from the Church of England who had an oppressive form of of government, which was a religious form of government, that was not worshiping in accordance with biblical principles. They left to start a new country all the way, halfway across the globe for this freedom. Does this freedom to worship feel very secure to you today? Is, is it in danger? Uh, you know, I don't have any confidence in the, the Southern Baptist Convention at all. I, I, I think that a church should flee from that convention right now with the things that we see going on. But our government just yesterday announced that the DOJ has the SBC under federal investigation. This is an awful easy way for our government and the administration to weasel their way into controlling something that is protected by our Constitution, our religious freedom. I don't think anybody here looks at Joe Biden and his agencies and the people that work for him and think that he would want us worshiping the God of the Bible with the things that he believes and the things that his administration stands for. In a few years, maybe we'll see a change because it's always changing. Do you see how we are affected and are subject to change? Do you ever find yourself, even in earthly terms, being desiring to be under the control and authority of someone who doesn't change. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Well, our text this morning gives us as Christians and those who are anxious over the state of their souls great hope in God. Great hope. We have some sweet words to look at this morning. We see that from Psalm 90, we see that He is God from everlasting to everlasting. This is so unlike what we are, as we have already stated. Our text says that even our years are numbered. 70, maybe 80. There's a few people I know that have reached their 90s. Even a couple that I've heard of, never met, one that's reached their hundreds. But at some point, they die. My, uh, my grandmother, Walker, my grandma Walker, would have been 97 yesterday. 97. My daughter, Elizabeth, will be 21 tomorrow. My grandmother's no longer here. We miss her. We miss her presence. 
My daughter is in Alabama. I miss her presence. And I pray that she lives a long and, and, and happy life living to the glory and the honor of God. But she will one day also be looked at as having said she would have been this age on her birthday. And so will every one of us. Someday someone is going to say his birthday, Justin's birthday is today. He would have been this old. Ever since the fall, our lives are subject to change and decay, but not so with our God. Our text tells us by divine inspiration that from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. It's not that He was God or that He will be God. He is God. There was never a time when He was not God. There will never be a time when He is not. He is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. We often talk about us as being eternal, and when someone passes away, they, we talk about them going to their eternal home, and there is a sense in which we have eternal souls, but it is very different from what theologian, theologians um, regard as the eternality of God. It's something entirely different. We were created. He is the creator who was never created. He has being in and of himself. He is the definition of eternal. No beginning and no end. One of the theologians from the late 1600s to the early 1700s stated it like this, and and I'll quote this. There are indeed other things that shall endure to everlasting as angels and the souls of men, also those heavenly bodies that shall remain after the creature is delivered from the bondage of corruption to which it is now subject, and likewise the heavenly places designed for the seed of the blessed, but the everlasting duration of these things infinitely differs from the eternity of God. Let me say that again. But the everlasting duration of these things infinitely differs from the eternity of God as all infinite things began to be and their duration is successive so their everlasting existence depends entirely on the power and the will of God and therefore cannot be called necessary or independent as his, as God's eternal existence is. Do you see the difference there? We may live forever, but we are not eternal. Eternal means that always existed, always will exist. We do not share that attribute with God. In Job 36, we find uh, someone finally with some sense speaking to Job. If you guys remember through Job what was going on, um, Job's, the catastrophes that came into to Job's life and his, his three wonderful friends who seemed to be more of a hindrance to Job 
than a help. But finally, in chapter 32, there's, there's this young man, Elihu, and he is burning with anger against these three friends of, of Job uh, who tried to help him, and he rebukes them, and, he, and then he rebukes Job himself in chapter 33. And in chapter 34, he asserts the justice of God, and in 35, he once again speaks to Job and condemns him. Then in chapter 36, this, this man, this, this uh, friend, Elihu, lifts up the greatness of God in chapter 36. And in Job 36, 26, if, you're, if you want to turn there, you can. He says, Behold, God, his, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Why is it that his years are unsearchable? Because there is no beginning to them. They cannot be numbered. Here is a God, a lie who says, of true eternity. Unsearchable, innumerable in his years. The creator, not the created. Isn't that what God himself is telling Job when, when he answers Job in, in Job 38.4? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then he goes on to tell Job in the next few chapters, in rapid fire succession, he gives voice to what it means to be the creator. No one else but the eternal God can lay any claim to that attribute. Everything else has a beginning, a time of creation, a moment when it was brought forth into existence, and the eternal, holy, triune God is the one who did it. He is eternal. Here are a few more references if you're taking notes and want to put them down um, and go back and look at it. Deuteronomy 33:27 speaks of the eternal God as your dwelling place. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Romans 1:20 speaks of his eternal power and divine nature being his invisible attributes that have clearly been perceived in creation. Psalm 93.2 states, His throne is established from of old. He is from everlasting. He is from everlasting. Our second text this morning in James gives us another aspect of this that always goes hand in hand with eternality with the fact that God is an eternal being. He is the eternal being. He is unchangeable. As theologians refer to this attribute, they, they refer to it as his immutability. So I may use those words interchangeably today. Immutability means that he is not subject to mutation. He is not subject to change. He is unchanging. And he's unchanging in his person, his being, and in his purpose. And here is where the Christian takes great solace, takes great comfort. His purpose is immutable. His purpose is unchanging. 
Our text in James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is not even the shadow of a change in God Almighty. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You are doing things that are displeasing to me. You are sinning against me, but I set my love upon you, and I do not change. And attributed to the second person of the triune Godhead, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is further evidenced by, by John 1, by the fact that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Not, not their beginning, but the beginning, not, not just there. We talked about this from Revelation. It, it's not just that He was the first begotten, of creation, but he is the first begetter of creation. He was there. It is by his word that the earth was created and everything in it. One with God. In the beginning with God. These two things, eternality and immutability, are so closely related. Only an eternal being can be unchangeable. I am not a philosopher, but this just makes sense. Do, do you see this? Only an eternal being can be unchangeable. If anything is created, it cannot be said to be eternal. In the true sense of the word eternal. We, we defined that a moment ago. Never having a beginning never having an end. If, a, if something is eternal, it's always been, always will be. If we are creatures, if we are created, if anything is created, it cannot be, in the truest sense of the word eternal, eternal as God is eternal. God is altogether something different, something far greater He's infinitely different than us in his being or the being of anything else in creation. Even the angels God created. Even the angels. So different from us, but oh, the difference between God and the angels or us. He's eternal. Never began Always has been. Try and grasp that with your mind if you can. We'll come back several years from now and we'll still be attempting to grasp that. Hebrews 7.21 says, but this, was made, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So not only 
is God unchanging in his being, but he is unchanging in his purpose. He will not change his mind. Titus 1, 1 through 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. His purpose, his mind, this is one who does not lie, who cannot lie, promised something before the ages began. Keep that in mind. That he has made a promise before this world was created. And he will keep that promise. He cannot lie. He will keep that promise because he is unchangeable in his mind and in his purpose. And similar to this in terms of a, of a facet even of this immutability in relation to mind and purpose is Ephesians 3.11 where it says this was according to the eternal promise that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to take some time. Let's turn to Ephesians 3. I think this is worth, worth us taking our time to, to look at this. Ephesians 3, <clears throat> 1 through 12. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is an interesting idea here. I'd love to explore this just in depth one day. This mystery of Christ. Which was not made, verse 5, known to, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what, listen, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to what? Occur according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom 
we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is a wonderful and eye-opening passage of Scripture. It's in reference to the unchangeable and immutable plan of our God working through God the Spirit and revealed by the Spirit of God. Excuse me, working through God the Son and revealed by the Spirit of God. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here in this passage. All three. The triune God is unchangeable and eternal. Paul speaks of this mystery of the purpose and plan, the predestined purpose of God in the salvation of his people. Look at verse 11 there again. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was an eternal, unchangeable purpose that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. God did not change his purpose. God did not change what he was doing in relation to salvation. There is not one salvation for the Jews and one salvation for the Gentiles. Paul says that the mystery previously undiscovered is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same promise. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. The gospel which was first made known to us in the mystery of the curse of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, when he cursed the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is part of that mystery. This is the first mention of the mystery of the gospel whereby both Jews and Gentiles are to be saved. The mystery of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that was not God's plan. It pointed forward to the realization of God's plan in the sacrifice, the true atoning sacrifice, made by Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, 6, we have this promised sacrifice by an, Old Testament prom- by, by an Old Testament prophet. You see what he said here? Which was not made known in, in chapter 3, verse 5 of Ephesians, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. Well, we have a a testimony that is greater than the prophets. It's Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit taking the words that God has has breathed into these men to write the, the, the words of the Bible, God's holy word, to reveal to us what this plan was all along. 
In Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. This is not an Old Testament sacrifice. Every Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifice pointed to this sacrifice. This is the mystery that Paul is talking about. It's not animal sacrifice for the Jews and the sacrifice of Christ for the Gentiles. It's the sacrifice of Christ from beginning to end. The to that's the eternal plan. This is what was pictured in every Old Testament sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. Look, look there with me real quick. Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and start reading, so hopefully you can catch up if you're not there yet. Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings for sin. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering for all time. For beginning to end. One offering. Here is the purpose of God. 
It's never changed. His purpose stands immutable, unchangeable, unwavering, eternal. Well, how do we know it's eternal? How do we know that this isn't going to change? 1 Peter 1, 18-21 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. That mystery becoming realized. He was made manifest in, these, in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Nothing else. They're in God. Revelation 13, 18. This is a passage that's talking about the great beast. And all who dwell on earth will worship that great beast. Except... Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Before time began. The only ones who won't bow down and worship that beast are the ones whose names are written in this book. The book that they call right here in Revelation, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And when was it written? Before the foundation of the world. It's an unchanging, eternal plan. There is a unified, immutable Everlasting to everlasting purpose of God that is revealed to us throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, much of it is mystery, but it's been revealed to us in the person and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what are the product of these great doctrines? of eternality and immutability. Well, I want to real briefly look at three different groups. What does this truth produce in the unregenerate? Well, we read from Psalm 2 earlier in our scripture reading. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why is it and how is it that this understanding, that this, this view of an almighty, eternal, unchangeable God causes rage? Why is that? Turn with me to Romans 1. Start beginning at verse 
18. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, listen, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for they exchanged, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled, listen, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This explains it all. They rejected that which was clearly evidenced by creation. His eternal power and divine nature, including his immutability. And suppressed that which was clearly observable since the time of creation. So God gave them over to a debased mind and that produced all sorts of evil. Covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, producing a hatred of God. Why do the nations rage? Because they suppressed the knowledge of God in their evil hearts and God gave them over to a debased mind. Well, what about these truths in the anxious soul, the second type of individual, the one that has possibly seeking for refuge and security against the effects of sin felt in their lives? For those souls who are anxious about salvation or for salvation, those who have been 
maybe pricked by the word of God to have a concern over the state of their heart, these truths produce a glimpse of hope. I can't help but think about Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. As he read the word, this burden began to grow on his back. Something's not right with the city I live in and something's not right with me. And it just began to grow and grow and grow until it became this all-consuming search to find relief from this burden. Well, the unchangeable nature of an eternal God who would finish a work of salvation can give them great relief for that heavy burden and the fear of being lost. If you find this to be your case this morning, then take heart in the words of the revelation of Jesus Christ that we've spent so much time recently looking at. But in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, we, we read this in our last message from the, the church at, uh, at Laodicea. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. Let him come. These echo the words spoken. Just proves more and more when you look at these things. That this is an unchangeable purpose. This is an unchangeable word. This is an unchangeable plan. Because these words in Revelation, the last book in our New Testament, possibly the last book written that is contained in our New Testament, Echo the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then in verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And then in verse 6 and 7, Seek the Lord to the one who has a burden, to the anxious soul who has a burden of sin on their back, seeking refuge, seeking help to be free of that burden. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And may the Spirit of God, by the plan of God the Father, through the work of God the Son, lead us to the place we find in verse 12 of Isaiah 55, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. May that anxious soul be led out of the bondage of sin as Israel was led out of Egypt and as Israel was led out of the captivity to Babylon. That's what it pictures for us. This is the mystery of God's plan. Well, what are these truths to the regenerate soul? Oh, they give great hope, do they not? Great hope. Ephesians 3, 11 through 13. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've already read this, but it's worth repeating. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for which is your glory, Paul says. Even the suffering that Paul was experiencing can be joyful, can be hopeful. In Titus 1, 1 through 2, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hope. Hope. Full assurance in times of difficulty and purpose for all things, including our very death. Because it brings about the next part of God's plan. Romans 8, 28 through 39 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. All those whom He predestined, He also called. This is immutability. This is unchanging. This is not some whom he justifies or some who he predestines. This is those whom he predestines, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Is there any greater assurance that can be found in the eternal than in the eternal and unchangeable purpose of the plan of Almighty God. 
Read verse 38 and 39 there again. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. What does that leave out? There's a creator and everything else is creation. nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no moving target with God. He's unchanging. There is no changing of standards, no moving of the mark, no changing the goal. You know, I often hear people even talk about the Ten Commandments and how Jesus did away with them. When he... he, And... and if, if you go to Matthew 5, he never said he was doing away with the Ten Commandments. He said, you know, you, in that passage, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he said, well, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, right? He was telling them and explaining to them what the law meant all along. He didn't do away with the law. The keeping of the law was never able to sin to save any of fallen mankind. Never. Christ came to keep the law. And the law for us fallen mankind was to drive us right to him. Christ was telling them how deep-seated sinfulness was in their own lives but they had created this this teaching, this tradition that it was only about that which was outward keeping of the law. He was telling them what, what it was really about, how desperately wicked and depraved we are in our hearts, how we are guilty of all of it. And we must look to the eternal and unchangeable plan of God to cure us from the curse of the law. His standard was always holiness. Any and all transgression was a death sentence, whether it was one or 100 million transgressions. In fact, we're born in sin and sin before we even realize what we're doing. That's how deep-seated sin is in our lives after the fall. But God's purpose, as we saw from Ephesians 3, was realized in the person and the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, dwelling among us, to live in perfect obedience and give Himself as satisfaction for the wrath of God against sin. He is the Lamb slain. In Revelation 5, we, we read this a long time ago, but... He's the one worthy to open the scroll. You remember where John was was weeping because they couldn't find anybody worthy to open the scroll? And the elder came to him and said, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And he looked and what did he see? He saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song as a result of that. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the plan. This is the plan and the purpose of an eternal and immutable God. He cannot change. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be pressed or coerced into changing his mind if he has redeemed you. Is there anything that can separate you from his love? He's unchangeable. His, by his very character, by who he is, he is unchangeable. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. If he has redeemed you, you are his and you will be brought into his presence and we will sing this song for the rest of eternity. There's no plan B. This is the one way, the one purpose, the one plan. Praise be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for where you've led us this morning, Lord. I pray that those who heard the message will have benefited from it, Lord, that they might meditate on your word throughout the week. The, the sure foundation, the rock, our fortress, our, our shelter and our refuge that is immovable. It's eternal, it's unchanging. There is no other refuge. There is no other source of salvation. Lord, for those who are yet strangers to your grace and your mercy, we pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their sins. Lord, that you would weigh them down with the burden of their sin that they might look to you. that they might find salvation in you, that they might find that in eternity past that their name was written in the Lamb's book of life, that they might see Christ, that they might see his sacrifice, they might see that he atoned for their sin. Lord, give them a glimpse of the Savior. Lord, be with us throughout this week. In your name we pray, amen.